We turn this evening to Titus chapter 3. We're going to be looking especially at verse 8. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Well, in the minds of some, good works are irrelevant to the Christian. And of course, when we come to the business of the salvation of our soul, we do not rely upon good works, a holy life, kindness to others. Works must follow faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostle makes that clear here. He speaks of those that have believed in God, trusted God's promise, come to rest in the plan, the scheme of salvation, which the Lord Jesus Christ has secured for guilty sinners such as we are. But having believed in God, we are called to a life of holiness and service, of self-denial and usefulness to the Lord. And so we're going to look at this verse particularly in detail this evening. I've given my message this evening a title and really it's found as we shall see a little later in the middle of this, ver of this verse and the title is Anxious to Excel. Is that true of us brothers and sisters? Are we those that have believed in God? That's where we must begin trusting his word crediting all that he has said relying upon the salvation that he has provided, but having come to Christ, having trusted God's scheme, are we now anxious to excel for him? Well, we begin then in the beginning of this verse 8. Paul says this is a faithful saying. And throughout Timothy and Titus, there are five times where Paul makes a statement a series of verses, a pivotal doctrine, and he has referred to it as a faithful saying, something most dependable, something trustworthy, but perhaps more, he means, something which is a key statement of the faith. And he's referring back here, of course, to verses 3, 2 to verse 7 that statement concerning how a soul is saved, what we once were, helpless, undone, beyond helping ourselves, unworthy, guilty, despicable. And the Lord in his mercy saved us. And the apostle then adds here, these things I will that thou affirm constantly. I will. Here, it's not the usual word for will. 
It's the word that means I intend. And Paul, remember, is writing under inspiration of God. When he speaks here of his own will, he is not speaking as a mere man, but as the inspired apostle and officer of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an authority to his I will. Paul is telling us this is God's will. Titus, you are to affirm these things constantly. It means to strenuously and continually affirm them. What do you expect of a preacher, a pastor, a minister of the gospel? He is continually to strenuously labour what Paul has just outlined concerning the way of salvation, the love of God, the Father. He is the one that is the source and the plan or the divisor of the scheme of salvation. We see all three members of the Godhead here. Verse 5 speaks of the regenerating and renewing of the Holy Spirit. He is the agent. Let none of us think I saved myself. I woke up and decided I would be a Christian. I felt my sin. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, in great mercy, regenerated us. We were born again. We were made alert and alive to spiritual things, to heavenly things. That's the difference between the person who is concerned for their soul and the lost around them. Are we better? Is there more wisdom in the Lord's people? Not by nature. It's the work of God to regenerate and then to renew and work within us that new principle that desires holiness. Verse 6, we see the work of the Lord Jesus Christ involved in our salvation which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Why did the Spirit of God work in our hearts if we are Christians this evening? Is it because in some way we deserved it? No. It is because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. He has paid the price. He has bought us. We didn't know it. But from all eternity, God set his love upon us and Jesus Christ the Son purposed to go to Calvary's cross to redeem us, to ransom us, to make us his own. And then as a result, that Holy Spirit is shed upon us. It wasn't an arbitrary work. It was, he was shed upon us. He worked in our life because Jesus Christ has secured by his death a right to our souls to save us from our sin. Verse 7, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justification means to be pronounced righteous by God. 
Eternal life is that new life begun here on earth, a new reconciled relationship with God in heaven, but it continues into eternity. And our hope is that when death parts us from this world, our souls will know that continued bliss of being under the favor of God and in his presence. But why are we justified? And why do believers have this confident expectation of eternal life? It is simply through Jesus Christ. It is because we are united to him. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, there is a whole catalogue of spiritual blessings which the Lord's people have been given. And each and every one of them are granted to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's because we are in union, united to him. And we can think of that in two ways. Firstly, we are in Christ Jesus because God in his mercy put us there. He placed us within Christ as our saviour. We are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That cannot be anything to do with us, can it? It's only according to the sovereign pleasure of God that he should so purpose that we should be found in Christ, united to him, that he should be our representative and live a holy life for us and die an atoning death on our behalf. But also we are in Christ by faith. Faith brings us into union. We take refuge in him. We abandon all hope and trust in ourselves and we commit ourselves to the safety and the safekeeping of Christ. Are you in Christ this evening in that sense? We cannot look at the annals of God and see whether God in his sovereign pleasure placed us within Christ. We can only know this by faith. Has God moved us to abandon all confidence in ourself and commit our soul, our life, for time, for all eternity, to Jesus Christ? If we have trusted him as the only Savior, then verse 7 is true of us. We may not feel it, but before God, we are justified. God the Father views us as in Christ. We sung this at the end of the service last Lord's Day evening. Tis he instead of me is seen when I approach to God. We're in Christ. Our sin is hidden from the gaze of a holy God. The righteousness of Christ is what the Father sees when we come and plead with him for mercy and kindness. The hope of eternal life. How can we be sure that heaven is ours and all its blessings forevermore if we are in Christ and we've cast our souls upon him then it's true of us. Well, we digressed a bit. Verse 8. This 
is a faithful saying, says the apostle. These great and grand truths of salvation, affirm them constantly, Titus, and every other, and then adds that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. You might think that this is a separate subject that the apostle has now moved on to, but it most certainly isn't. This is the ultimate end of the affirmation that Titus is to affirm, to declare. Titus, don't simply preach the method of salvation by Christ through faith, on account of the grace of God through the Holy Spirit. These are grand truths. But what's the end of them? It is that those that have believed this great salvation might be careful to maintain good works. Now there are some very significant words in this phrase that I want us to explore this evening. Firstly, good works, then maintain, and thirdly, careful. Did you know the word careful here? It's translated from a Greek word used nowhere else in the New Testament, only here. It's a very significant word, but we begin with good works because we often misunderstand or we limit this word, particularly in our society. Good works have become simply works of charity, works of kindness, of benevolence, and of course they are good works. But when Titus is refer when Paul refers here to good works, he doesn't simply mean, well, make sure the Christians are kind to one another, make sure they visit the sick and the elderly and the disadvantaged, make sure they care for one another, all of that's included. But good works here means every branch of our Christian duty as the children of God. Our moral duty, yes. Our civil duties in society, but also our religious duties. Worship is a good work. Prayer is a good work. Studying the scriptures that we may know more of our God is a good work. Living a holy life is a good work. Showing kindness to the lost by witnessing to them seeking to persuade them and point them to the Saviour is a good work, as well as all those works of mercy and kindness and generosity. So one old preacher describes good works here as noble deeds done in gratitude to God. Good. What's meant by good? Well, good is something that is pleasing to God, glorifying to Christ because we are his, he's bought us, and good measured sometimes by the benefit that they are to those around us, benefit to their souls. 
Some, of course, go astray here and they say, well, good works means social action. We've got to remember the poor and uh, give them food and so on. And, of course, that's included. And there are, have been those over the years, I'll mention one a little later, who have been tremendously generous in social ways. We mustn't forget that. But the greatest good that we can do to the needy is to point them to Christ and to set before them the way of eternal life and bliss and joy. Well, this then is a call to live a life of excellence. Some translate the word good here in that sense. Excellent works. A life of excellence. Think of it like that. It's quite helpful to do so. They which have believed. Do you look back this evening and say, I love what Paul has said here, reminding me of what I was in my foolishness and disobedience. I was a nasty piece of work, but the Lord saved me by his grace. He worked in my soul. And now I'm justified before God. I have peace with heaven. I have that glorious hope of eternal life. The Lord's done so much for me. Well, yes, you have. Yes, yes, he has. For all of us. I will. I intend, says Paul, that Titus, you affirm these things and that you exhort those who are your hearers to be careful to maintain good works. The language is emphatic. Maintain. Perhaps this is not the best translation. I looked at one or two of the modern um, versions as well, and really, they don't hit the nail on the head either. Perhaps I wouldn't do any better to find one word, but this is the word that refers to the rule of an office bearer in the church. It's the same family of word. And really it means to preside. But what's meant here? Are Christians to be presiders over the good works of others? That's not the sense. The idea is that believers are to be at the forefront. They are to be foremost in good works, presiding in that sense, just like the person who is the presider, the captain of a, a football team, he's to be at the forefront, he's to lead the way, he is to inspire, to encourage, uh, to uh, provoke others, to uh, expend all their energy in order to succeed. Well, here. The word is used in this sense. He is saying, exhort your people, affirm constantly that they are to maintain, to excel, to outdo others. It's another way of uh, the meaning of this word. To go before others so as to provoke them to follow. Not, of course, to draw attention to myself, not to say, look at my holy life, 
or look at my kindness or look at the zeal and energy that I give out in the service of others or look at how precise I am in seeking to follow the Lord and commune with him and worship him not to draw attention to myself but to seek to excel in all those things in order that others should be provoked to honor the Lord similarly. That's the meaning of this word, maintain good works. Do we have this sense? Do we say, well, the Lord has saved me. The Lord has done so much for me. How am I ever to reflect the gratitude that fills my soul? What is it that I can do in every department of my life, in my thought life, in my soul, in my conversation, in my dividing up of my time, in every way I would excel in living a life that is good in the sight of God, pleasing to him in every way. To outdo others, not in pride, but because it's the least I can do before the Lord. Then we have another word here, careful. And as I said, this word careful, it means it's only used here. It means to give earnest and continual thought to something. A careful striving of my soul to think about these things every moment thinking reviewing resolving anxious to excel that's the sense here many of us perhaps and I speak for myself as well we can easily just drift in the Christian life and think well the Lord's been good I know I should try and do what's right I should try to please him But the word here, careful, doesn't allow us just to bob along, as it were, and say, well, that's the underlying principle of my life. The apostle here uses such graphic and energetic language. Affirm constantly. See that they maintain, they preside, that they seek to vie with one another in order to live lives which are so markedly excellent and cause them to have it always in mind, to be thinking about this continually. How can I serve the Lord? How can I please him? What good can I be to those around me? What will best honour and glorify my Saviour? That's really the thrust of this phrase. It's far more than just saying, well, I'll put a little bit of extra money in the collection. It's, may my whole life be devoted to the praise of God. You will have heard of Dr. Bernardo, famous Victorian who did so much good to the children of London in the 1850s. Well, Bernardo was born in Dublin and as a young man he was 
known to read radical books like the philosopher Rousseau and others and he was known to be a bit of a troublemaker not practically but by the way he debated and discussed things but at 16 having been apprenticed I think to a wine merchant he was converted and upon conversion his initial desire I don't mean straight away but in the years that followed was to go as a missionary to China he'd read of Hudson Taylor and he felt a real burden to do good for the Lord by going to China but he traveled to London and when he came to London he was deeply moved by the poverty <coughs> cholera had been the cause of much death and there were many street children there was much overcrowding illiteracy and he was overwhelmed by the needs of so many lost and ignorant children in London and over the months that followed he felt he must give up on his desires to go to China recognizing that there was a great mission field in inner London and he was instrumental fairly soon in setting up what was known as a ragged school where boys I think it was to start with came along and he began to teach them freely and arranged for others to help him and he set up a boys home for homeless boys it was full he had to turn one young lad away and he learned a few days later that this young lad had died destitute and he resolved that there would never be another young man turned away from his schools and from the care, care that he would provide here was a man who wanted to do much for Christ his greatest burden was to reach souls with the gospel not to be a cause of social relief but he recognized that these young people these children needed a roof over their heads as well as a soul that needed saving it was said that during by the end of his life there were I think over 90 children's homes set up through his instrumentality here was a man who was rich in good works he did much for the Lord he ought to be an inspiration to us he thought what can I do for the Lord to relieve the needy that I see what are the motives careful to maintain good works as I said it means to give earnest thought to it that implies that we think about not only what we can do but we reflect upon the motive that ought to provoke us to a life that is good in every respect not just in works of mercy as I said but the whole of our life we are to be thoughtful this word implies thought and if we go back to verses 3 
to 7. And then here in the middle of verse 8, there are two great departments of thought. The first is implied here, those which have believed in God. We cannot, and belief there doesn't simply mean, of course, well, I believe God exists. It means those that have trusted God. God has provided so great a salvation. And by his grace, through faith, I have availed myself, as it were, of that great salvation. The Lord has blessed me in a singular and remarkable way. Millions around me know nothing of Christ. Thousands that I've interacted with in life will have no hope of heaven when they come to die. And the Lord has blessed me, and I've come to trust, to rest upon him. If we allow that thought to be constantly affirmed in our own minds, then surely it provokes us to say, what an obligation I have to strive to excel in every part of my life in gratitude to the Lord. If Titus is to affirm it constantly, then we are to reflect upon it and think about it constantly. The other thing to be careful of or to be thoughtful of is to reflect upon the hope that is set before us, made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The heir is a child. If I'm an heir of such great blessing still to come, not simply what the Lord has already done for me, but what by Christ has secured for a never-ending eternity of bliss, of joy in the presence of my Lord, surely I shall be careful. I want to excel for the Lord. I want to please him. I want to de dedicate my life to him. I want to reflect the gratitude that I feel within by serving him. That seems to be the Apostle's genuine thrust here. Well, I want to draw to a conclusion. Think about this. How do you define good works? Well, in one sense, the only way you can define what it means to excel or to live a life that is good is the Ten Commandments. Many people's perception of the Ten Commandments is it's a list of don'ts. But actually, as the Puritans used to say, it's also a list of do's. The don'ts are to be reflect, uh, reflect the opposite positive virtues. Turn back with me just for a couple of minutes before we close to Ephesians chapter 4. And you'll see how Paul, in a sense, implies, hints at that with regard to two or three of the commandments. So, verse 25, Ephesians chapter 4. Wherefore, and well, we need to read verse 24. He's de describing what it means to be 
a new man, created in righteousness and true holiness. What does it mean? Verse 25, put away lying. There's the ninth commandment. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. Be sincere in what you say. Be honest. Be frank. Never deceive. Speak the truth that you know. There's the opposite virtue. If we are to excel in good works, we will be known for our honesty. Not simply being honest about ourselves, but telling the truth as it is revealed in God's word. Not hiding it. Then look at verse 28. Let him that steal, stole, steal no more. There's the don't. Don't be a thief. But rather let him labour, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. There's the opposite positive virtue to that commandment not to take what belongs to another. If we would excel in living a life pleasing to the Lord, rich in that which is good, then not only do we are we to be earnest and honest workers, industrious, but the aim is that we may relieve those who are needy, to be generous, to be selfless, that we may give, have to give to him that needeth. Then verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. There's the don't. Don't swear. Don't abuse others verbally. But that which is good to the use of edifying, to build up others, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. These are to be our continual aim. Be careful. Think about them constantly. Strive to excel in these traits of character. You know, there's a lot of what's called antinomianism about today. American friends we entertained last weekend were telling us that so many churches in the USA, they preach a gospel which essentially says, well, you believe in Jesus and you just carry on as you did. No change of life, no real separation from the world, no consecration, no desire to please God. You dress, you think, you act, you pursue the American dream and so on, and church has just tagged on. That's so alien when you think of what Titus is describing here. It's telling us that having believed in God, Having come to Christ, we then are to be anxious, careful, to maintain, to excel in a life that in every way is pleasing to God. Well, may he bless these things to us. Amen. We close our worship with hymn 461. Lord, in the fullness of my might, I would for thee be strong. 461.